Anthony Fantano here, the internet's busiest music nerd, and welcome to another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we go over the best reviews and rants that we have had to offer over the past week. We are getting into a slew of albums. Like usual in this latest episode, I'm going to be taking on the new jet-lagged and very narrative-dense Sun Kill Moon record, This Is My Dinner. If you are a singer-songwriter fan and you like your music real wordy, don't miss out on this one. Also, I'm going to be taking on the latest LP from Imagine Dragons. Not a huge fan of it, so... (laughs) It's expect uh, an explosive review there. Also going to be talking about the latest cavalcade of covers from Jeffrey Lewis and his band uh, from the discography of Tuli Kupferberg of the Fugs fame. If you're completely unfamiliar with any of that, believe me, it's going to be a fun time. Uh, lots of anti-folk ballads about things like orgies and the New York subway system, so don't miss out. Going on from there, I'm going to be talking about the new effort from Trap production superstar Metro Boomin. And uh, then from there, we're going to be talking about the new Little Peep posthumous record, Come Over When You're Sober Part 2. I'm also going to be talking about the new Beatles White Album remix, as well as doing a little uh, track review for the latest Creed soundtrack-inspired, movie-inspired new single from Pharrell, Mike Wilmeda, and Kendrick Lamar. That is what you're going to hear in this episode, so strap in. Here it comes. Bang. And it's time for a review of the new Sun Kill Moon record, This Is My Dinner. This is the newest full-length album from singer-songwriter Mark Kozlek's Sun Kill Moon. Mark is an Ohio native who has been in the industry for years now, and the third and current act of his career has been one of the most interesting artistic trajectories of any songwriter out there. Patient and contemplative music have always been a part of Mark's repertoire, going back to his days fronting slowcore gods, the Red House Painters. And he's still a pretty thoughtful guy now, but his songwriting style has become radically different over the years. Recently, I'd say it's been evolving faster and faster, thanks in part to a very prolific release schedule, the overwhelming age of information that we live in, as well as Mark's very unfiltered lyrical style. A lot of this can be traced back to a handful of records that came out in the first part of this decade. Perils from the Sea, Among the Leaves, and Mark's most popular album in years, Benji. Also an influential factor in this evolution, I think, was the beef that Mark found himself embroiled in after some offhand stage banter that basically put him in a sensationalized beef with the band The War on Drugs. Mark also did not hesitate to put himself at odds with both music fans and journalists as he trolled them mercilessly with both crude lyrics and commentary. A lot of this drama culminated into a one-off tune named after the stage banter that got Mark in trouble in the first place. Recording a seven-minute diatribe about a mostly made-up conflict that would have evaporated in a week had you ignored it. For some songwriters, that might seem a little too specific, a little too niche, but an extreme focus on minutia has become a key feature of Mark's music ever since, whether that be in his solo stuff or his Sun Kill Moon stuff, the various collaborations he's explored for the past few years, like with Sean Yeaton, as well as Justin Broderick, just to name a few. Now, going into this new LP... I was not sure if Mark could get even more meta, given his last album. It was a solo record that he put out just earlier this year. The album featured a series of very serene, semi-ambient guitar backing tracks, with Mark waxing poetic for seven to ten minutes at a time about 
his hometown, his past, boxing, interactions with various people, and even lawn maintenance. I don't mean to oversimplify Mark's approach to songwriting in this era of his career, but the simplicity of it is part of its beauty. The rawness of it, how in the moment it feels, and how unedited Mark is when it comes to the details he surrenders in his lyrics, or the topics that he chooses to approach. On top of it, none of this would be as compelling as it actually is if Mark was not a talented storyteller. Because I can't really name any other songwriters who I would listen to just rail on and on and on for two hours or 90 minutes and I would actually enjoy it. That's definitely something to behold. As is Mark's heightened sense of self-awareness and his utter demolition of the fourth wall over the past few years to the point where I just don't even anticipate it to exist anymore on a record that he makes. But for Mark, tearing down the separator between the artist and the audience is not enough because on This Is My Dinner, I would say he's tearing down a fifth wall as well and transcending the actual medium that he's making art within. I mean, I don't think anybody would categorize this album as anything else other than music, but I don't really enjoy this album the same way that I typically enjoy music because with Mark's tangents on this record getting more rambly, less focused, less edited, and with the instrumentals growing even more inoffensive and repetitive, I don't really feel like I'm focusing on or enjoying the musical aspects of this album at all. I'm more or less just reading into the ongoing story of Mark Kozlik, which I've been pretty deeply locked into for almost half a decade now. Because honestly, listening to this album, it feels more like listening to a podcast, or a totally raw, unending YouTube vlog where the host just divulges any and all personal information that they possibly can. And I don't think I'm alone in observing Mark crossing over this imaginary line, because there's literally a point on this album in Mark's lyrics, if you could even call them lyrics because he's he's barely even singing. Again, he's really just more rambling his way through these instrumentals. There's literally a point where he admits that what he's performing doesn't really make for much of a song. And honestly, I just took that as a statement of fact, as opposed to him trying to beat his detractors to a criticism. Because there are a lot of things I like about this record, but a lot of the time they just revolve around whatever story Mark is telling on a track, or whatever story within a story he's telling, or whatever story within a story within a story he's telling. Whether it be experiences he's having while out on the road in Scandinavia, which narratively makes for a great deal of this record, whether Mark is talking about the setting, the scenery, the towns, the people he's meeting, his moodiness, his jet lag. A lot of this really ties the album together, especially in the first half. Then we have some moments where he's shouting out some of his favorite, but also his least favorite music, whether it be Queen or the Eagles. Also a foreign boxer he admires, disgraced by his fellow countrymen for not matching up to Mike Tyson in a fight. There's a pretty memorable point on the album where Mark is singing about a little girl dealing with like some kind of cough or breathing issue and he actually goes on to mimic the sound of this problem in the song. <laughs> Really something I wanted to hear in 2018. There's also an interesting story on this record about Mark burning an old apartment down by leaving some candles out while he left the place. Also, Mark not being able to finish a song that he was typing out on his computer on an airplane because the stewardess told him to <laughs> close his laptop. After which, the refrain that he goes into uh, refers to the song itself being unfinished on the plane that he is flying on at that very moment. I could go on, but again, little of what I like about this record and what I remember from it as well, 
has little to do with the music on it. And when the music does stand out, it's not always for the best reasons, like on the song Linda Blair, the blippy, stuttering guitar lines that plink and plunk their way through the track, at least the first leg of it anyway, are tedious and annoying. There's also a really funny one-minute cover of the Partridge Family theme song on this album, too, which plays into the previous track on the album, which is part David Cassidy tribute, but also part long-winded introduction to the cover, which Mark refers to at least a few times times on the song saying, hey, we're gonna play this cover. Also in which Mark highly recommends the David Cassidy autobiography, Come On, Get Happy. But Mark doesn't really get too bogged down in the details of David Cassidy's story as it seems like he really does want his audience to buy and read the book. Which I guess in a way just intensifies my feelings about this album. <laughs> just vibing a lot more like a podcast than a record. Because literally throughout this thing, I'm getting book recommendations, hotel recommendations, some music reviews, a little bit of a travel log, some documentary and storytelling, and a sense of existential dread that rivals that of Mark Maron when Mark starts singing about how boner pill commercials are suddenly appealing to him because his, his pee-pee don't get as hard no more. This thing is a unique and also a truly strange listen, but also somewhat disappointing because while I do enjoy Mark's lyrics, I enjoy his storytelling, I enjoy his personality, but I also enjoy the man's musical talents, which I don't think are adequately showcased on this record. As a lot of the time, it feels like the music's only directive on this record is to be as basic and as loosely structured and as out of the way as possible to just kind of let Mark sit on top of it and rail away. I mean, there are some cute musical moments on the record, like some of the group refrains on the bluesy, this is not possible. Some of the noisy guitar freakouts on the track chapter 87 of He. Also the elongated vocal notes on the cut rock and roll singer, which is hands down my favorite track on this entire record. The tried and true country chords of the David Cassidy track are also kind of quaint, but all of this is barely enough to drive me back to this album honestly. So while I respect Mark Kozlek expanding his storytelling abilities on this album and completely break down the rules of what it means to write, record, and sell a song, musically speaking, I think this album is also one of his less interesting in recent memory. I'm feeling a decent to a strong six on this thing. Transition into the next review. Yo! Anybody but my Imagine Draggies! This new Imagine Dragons album? He's gonna do it! He's gonna do it, no! No! It's not good. Origins is the fourth full-length album from Las Vegas, Nevada, pop rock band, Imagine Dragons, who up until this point I've not really been a big fan of because of their reputation and, and typical sound, basically overblowing the trappings of pop rock to the point where they are arena-sized, soulless. I can't say I've heard a single Imagine Dragons song that I didn't think was overly dramatic, overproduced, blown up to the point where the band is making these mountainous songs out of molehills. You know, in most situations, I think I would have just let this album fly under my radar and and just went on living my life. But honestly, I was challenged to try it. My curiosity got the best of me and, you know, w worst fears confirmed. Kicking things off on this record, the opening track is actually not that bad. It has one of the more solid tunes on the entire record. But what bugs me about this song is that this band is four albums in 
and yet they don't really have a strong definitive sound I could tether directly to them as the first thing you're showing me here sounds like a bad mashup of Coldplay and the Foo Fighters. Which is a pretty prevalent mix of influences throughout this entire LP. A lot of the time the vocals don't really know whether or not they want to dig down deep and give that guttural David Grohl or just croon really softly and maturely like a Chris Martin. And honestly, there are some melodies and song structures on this record that aren't that bad, but truly what makes this record so distasteful to me is that it falls into a lot of the same traps and cliches that many millennial pop acts do who are trying to write music that sounds so crucial, as if this record is defining a cultural moment with its faux cinematic, blown out, compressed to hell instrumentation, the melodramatic vocals, the fake deep lyrics. The song Boomerang is one of the most annoying, repetitive, up, down, on again, off again relationship songs I've ever heard. And I pray the day they invent time travel never happens, because if it does, I'm taking the song back to 1994 and convincing Peter Gabriel to destroy all of his masters up until that point. Because, yeah, it just kind of sounds like an awful modern millennial take on a Peter Gabriel song. The song Machine is an even stranger headache and combination of themes and musical ideas. The sound of this thing is really heavy, it's clunky, it's like listening to industrialized pop rock. Simultaneously, the lyrics are about being a part of some sort of underclass, whether that be a social underclass or an economic underclass. And I'm just not gonna be a part of the machine anymore, bro. I'm just not gonna be a part of this machine. The chorus is a terrible revision of I love rock and roll, so put another dime in the jukebox, baby. So having mentioned all that, this song is like a socialist steampunk Joan Jett ripoff whose goal is revolution, but all it ends up being is revolting, so. <laughs> halfway there. And like many other millennial pop acts, I feel Imagine Dragons also suffer on this album from a case of boring verse syndrome, where you have a singer or a songwriter or a band structuring a song out, and the hook really pops, it might have a great melody, it might have a grand burst in instrumentation or volume, and it hits hard, it's an exciting moment, it's a great transition, but the verse leading up until that point is absolutely boring. The singing is super subdued, not much of a strong melody to speak of, the instrumentation is stripped back to its barest of necessities. It just seems like these moments are meant to put the audience into a boring, chilled out lull, so once that chorus finally hits, it's BAM! What makes the problem worse Worse for Imagine Dragons, though, is they're putting too many eggs into too few baskets, the baskets being the choruses, and the, the choruses aren't even that great. In fact, most of the time they're annoying. This is like the worst Bon Iver chorus imaginable, mixed with a touch of chill wave, I guess, with the instrumentals kind of glistening retro synths. Also, by this point on the album, I've kind of realized that the mix sucks. The mixes on these songs are awful, not only because the vocals are not really good enough to be this upfront and in your face, but also because the compression on these songs is wow. To the point where even the softer tracks on this thing sound blown the hell out. Super smooth glacial walls of synthesizers and bass just kind of crushing down any vocals that are mixed into it once the instrumentation swells on the hook, making the vocals sound like they're being pulled through a trash compactor. Another unfortunate thing about this album, because if the compression was not quite as bad, if the hooks and even a great deal of other parts on this album weren't so brick-walled, I think a lot of these songs would be more listenable. And listen, I'm not some soldier fighting the other side in the loudness war. A lot of the time, I don't really mind modern music production. I think compression can be a great tool and it has its place, it has its time. But there are moments in which it is blatantly overused and this is 
a prime example of that. The awful and corny choruses on this thing keep coming and coming and coming. I'm a bad liar. Not only does the song West Coast make me feel like millennial pop acts have just ruined folk music, but it also reminds me of Avicii's Wake Me Up, but it doesn't turn into an EDM banger. Then we have the song Zero Zero from the Wreck It Ralph Ralph Breaks the Internet movie. This track is an odd mix of things. I'm catching whiffs of we didn't start the fire. And then there's like this radio rock, this pop punky radio rock song from the 90s or the 2000s that I cannot place when I listen to this thing, but God, it's killing me whenever I listen to it. Once again, I can appreciate that Imagine Dragons pull from a pretty wide array of influences across the pop spectrum, but God, they throw them into the worst repackaging. Hello, hello, let me tell you what it's like to be a zero, zero. <laughs> This song sounds like if Coldplay didn't take themselves too seriously and just decided they're gonna go full Smash Mouth. That being said, I could foresee society moving into a dystopian future where basically Wreck-It Ralph replaces Shrek in, in like meme culture and this song essentially becomes the new all-star. Now, if it wasn't enough for the choruses on this album to be terrible, uh, the instrumentals actually start getting awful too. And keep in mind, the mixes and compression are still absolute garbage. The lead vocals on the song Bullet in a Gun are really distant, really raw and overacted. They are surrounded with this very skeletal instrumental with a kind of lo-fi, stuttering bit of percussion. I really can't place stylistically where the band was trying to go with this. It sounds kind of experimental in a way, like something you might find in a 10 Tricks Point Never or a Death Grips or maybe like a an MIA song back in the day. I have to admit, I do find the very dark themes of bipolar disorder and depression and suicide and the lyrics on this track kind of intriguing, specifically filtering these feelings through the pressures of, of being an artist, dealing not only with accusations of being a sellout by your fans, but maybe also some negative criticisms too. So I guess let the record show that I don't totally mind the messaging and the intention behind this song, but the musical package that it's held within doesn't really make it any easier to swallow. The song Digital is maybe my least favorite on the entire record as it features the messiest song, the most blown out chorus on the entire record. It's like this album with its awful compressed production is a really long elaborate bass boost meme that gets heavier and heavier and heavier as it goes along. And after multiple listens, I'm still not sure if I can make heads or tails of this song, there's very little about this specific track that is coherent. Not just because of the production and the sound and the mix, but there are multiple vocal lines that don't really match up. The breakbeat percussion on this cut is absolutely horrendous. The folkier passages seem to clash really heavily with the more electronic passages. It's really garish and one of the most awful uh, amalgamations of ideas and aesthetics I've heard in a while. Thankfully, the band really kind of lets listeners off a, a, a little easy with some more easygoing songs toward the end. Uh, the way the track Stuck uh, kicks off, if I squint my eyes and I just pretend I'm in a different place, I could kind of see my way to it being like, I don't know, a Vampire Weekend song produced for Taylor Swift fans. That is until on the hook we get one of the worst vocals on the entire record featuring uh, this totally strained, horrendous, time goes by. 
Yeah, this is not a great vocal performance. Between these three words, we have such an incredible boost in volume and aggression. Time goes by. The closing track is kind of cute, though, in that, yeah, it's, it's another kind of blown out chorus, awful sound. It, it's basically like Pop's answer to tinnitus. But the song hilariously ends off with this refrain, where did we all go wrong? Literally at the very end of the track. And yeah, I mean, I... I agree. If, if this was something that I had a hand in, that is the first thing that would come to my mind once it was finished. Where, where did we all go wrong? Yeah, this uh, Imagine Dragons album, it's not good. Before we get into the next review, I wanted to shout out one of our sponsors, the good people over at the Ridge Wallet. They make these nifty, metal-plated, convenient, compact wallets that will minimize the bulk in your pocket way better, superior to that disgusting, bulky leather wallet hanging out in your back pocket right now, giving you a back problem, giving you a butt problem. Downsize, get it in your front pocket. Been rocking mine for months now. Love it. Hit up ridgewallet.com slash Fantano and use promo code Fantano, ridgewallet.com slash Fantano, promo code Fantano for 10% off. And let's get into the next review. Thank you. And it's time for a review of the new album from Jeffrey Lewis and the Deposit Returners, works by Tuli Kupferberg, 1923-2010. to This is the latest full-length album from New York anti-folk veteran Jeffrey Lewis and his band, a man who has long been underappreciated in the New York music scene. And it's kind of understandable as to why, as Jeff's sound is, is not really for everybody. His voice, his guitar playing, the instruments he chooses to surround his songs in have a seasoned and yet very rickety quality to them that could only be honed through decades of going against the grain and being greatly influenced by generations of artists who have done the same pioneering raw forms of freaky folk and proto-punk. Just to name a very select few, the Velvet Underground, David Peel, Holy Modal Rounders, as well as a group by the name of the Fugs, who featured poet, cartoonist, songwriter Tuli Kupferberg, whose works are the basis of this very covers album right here. Tuli and the greater part of the 60s, 70s New York underground scene were introduced to me by Jeffrey himself about a decade ago with a captivating performance of poetry and music about a loose history of the scene's major songs and players and progressions, a lot of which is typically forgotten in favor of a lot of the big names to come out of punk rock in the late 70s, as if this movement and this genre of music just kind of came out of nowhere. But Jeffrey very much remembers and celebrates this lineage and embodies it in his music too, maybe more than any other anti-folk act to come out of New York in the late 90s or the 2000s, even when the scene was kind of peaking around 2007 when the Moldy Peaches were kind of dominating that hit Juno soundtrack. Now while the songs on this record are in fact covers, for a lot of young listeners these might as well be originals, because Jeff has pulled some real obscurities out of the abyss on this one. As his renditions of these tracks are now like the first thing that pops up when you try to search for them. Plus the way Jeffrey has updated and revised these songs, they play very nicely into his creaky nasal voice, his disheveled folk rock instrumentation, the somewhat out-of-tune guest singers. The only thing more raw than the sound of this album are the lyrics. Early on, you can hear this is not an album that's going to take itself too seriously and will address some very weird and awkward topics, especially considering the opening track is essentially about wanting to start a friendship with someone after an orgy. What are you going to do? After the orgy, I wanna make friends with you 
after the orgy. The messy group vocals and kind of chaotic folk rock guitars on this one make groups like the Violent Femmes sound slick. And there's a good handful of other tracks on this thing that are equally absurd, like the track I Wanna Hold Your Foot, which is essentially a, a topical remix of the Beatles song I Wanna Hold Your Hand, but this new take on the song is, is for foot fetishists, complete with a little vocal break featuring some members of the band talking about what they feel is the sexiest part of the foot. And then there's one of my favorite cuts on this thing, this is a hit song. A rowdy lo-fi punk rocker with distorted bass and jamming piano chords, with these manic group vocals all chanting, this is a hit song gonna make me rich, why don't you buy it you son of a bitch. And being a New Yorker through and through, what would this Jeffrey Lewis album be without a plucky folk tune about the decaying New New York City subway system. Um, this train is bound for Brooklyn, also a, another catchy and uh, supremely upbeat highlight on this thing. But one of the oddest cuts on this entire record has to be the song Hypothalamus, which is literally about the hypothalamus region of the brain. The instrumentation, the tune is very repetitive, very sour and odd, not all that catchy. Meanwhile, mixed in the chaos of the music is Jeffrey Lewis rattling off all of this encyclopedic knowledge uh, of the hypothalamus. It is hilarious and informative. There are some more serious cuts on here that range from being joyful to addressing some of the worst sides of mankind, whether that be the song Try to Be Joyful, which seems almost like joy as an act of resistance in the face of a horrible and callous world. Also, Love and Ashes, which is a chilling ballad, set to what sounds like recordings of news broadcasts and speeches, with lyrics about dropping the atom bomb during World War II, war and death, and so on and so forth, and that is juxtaposed against uh, love and marriage, and people somehow, I guess, just finding a significant other in the midst of uh, this world full of turmoil. However, the message of the song doesn't really seem like hopeful or inspiring or anything like that. It just merely seems like a very dark contrast. There are quite a few forlorn cuts on this record too, dealing in death and mortality and so on and so forth. And I get the sense that this album is also kind of a delayed send-off for Thule by Jeffrey and his band. As he wasn't just simply an inspiration on Jeffrey's artistic works, written, sung, and drawn, Jeffrey also knew the man personally. So there is certainly an unshakable feeling on this record that when Jeffrey and his band are singing about things like life and death, mortality, it's done out of respect for Thule's legacy and art, especially when Jeffrey can shift the focus or the lyrics on this album toward him, like on Life is Strange and Listen to the Mockingbird. Now there are also some moodier, more low-key moments on this record that I think are essential for building out a quality, varied track list, but these songs also serve as some of the roughest listens on the entire record, and not for their lack of heart or emotion either, but in kind of keeping with the spirit of some of these very freaky folk tunes and the era of music Jeffrey is trying to emulate on this record, there are a lot of spots where him and the band will throw in these very freaky, goofy background vocals that honestly don't fly over that well, make the tracks difficult to listen to. They kind of sound like uh, Brack from Space Ghost Coast to Coast, like wailing away in the background, especially on tracks like Carpe Diem or Seize the Day and uh, I Was Much Mistaken, whose original version doesn't even really call for vocals like this. Yeah, unfortunately, that element of this record does really take me out of enjoying uh, some parts of this record. It, it does. And I can understand the difficulties of trying to recreate 
the freakishness of some of those older records in in the modern day because uh, some of that weird singing in a group came over in a smudgier recording, which I think gave you more leeway than these days when you're kind of, you know, throwing vocals onto a digital multi-track. Generally, though, I did enjoy this album quite a bit. It's a pretty captivating set of funny and emotionally cutting renditions of the ripped, tattered, torn, lost, and ignored pages from the American Songbook. And even though there is some instrumentation and, and singing on this record that is a little too flimsy for me, simultaneously that also adds to the appeal of so many other tracks on this record, so you know, I guess you win some, you lose some, and it is what it is. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Metro Boomin' album, not all heroes wear capes. Metro Boomin is a hip-hop producer, songwriter, DJ from the great city of St. Louis, who has become one of the biggest, most in-demand, and respected names in this current wave of pop rap and trap since the earlier part of this decade. Now, to be completely honest, I've never really been that huge into Metro Boomin's production, though there have been numerous songs over the years that I just happen to like the track that he's producing for, or maybe his beat just stands out to me. I think one of my favorite Metro beats so far has been what he placed on Kanye's Father Stretch My Hands Part 1 with Kid Cudi. So Metro certainly does have these moments where he stands out and puts forward some bold production, but a lot of the time, stylistically, he's much more known for putting out these very skeletal, simple trap beats based on some very basic ideas and musical fundamentals, which texturally are not really that bold, they're not really that loud or aggressive or intriguing. Intrusive. The best thing you could say Metro does consistently is serves as a very complimentary platform for the many artists that have become very well known thanks to the beats that he has made for them. People like Kodak Black and Future and Migos, Young Thug, also 21 Savage. And Metro's connection to 2121 does talk to his very simple and spacey and basic approach because one of Metro Boomin's most notorious projects is his collaborative effort with 21 Savage, Savage Mode. Not a record I'm super enthusiastic about, but it still stands as one of the most popular and yet stripped back to the barest essential trap albums to date. So regardless of whether or not I find his beats to be all that bold, it still remains that Metro Boomin is one of the most genre-defining producers that trap has had to offer through his production, through the choice of artists he has decided to work with, through his writing. So it came as a shock and a big disappointment for a lot of people when about six or seven months ago, Metro Boomin announced that he would be retiring from music, I guess, which is kind of strange considering just how much name recognition and hype that he had around the time that he decided to quit. But now, not even a year after making this public statement, we're here with a new album. And, you know, it's, it's fine. I'll take it. I'll take it. So Metro Boomin, not all heroes wear capes. What is this? In a lot of ways, this project is like a lot of producer-guided records where they just grab an array of features from some of their favorite artists that they worked with over the years. Hopefully, they put their best production forward and you mostly kind of focus on that. And hopefully, the whole thing just comes out listenable. Typically, I find a lot of these producer-guided projects to be a bit of a mixed bag, and I think that's also the case for this new Metro Boomin. Though there are some interesting aspects and highlights to it that if they had carried out through the rest of the LP, I think this could have been a 
more formidable project. Even if there are some moments on this thing where I do think the beats underwhelm a little bit, there is actually some standout production on this thing. Metro Boomin does go a little bit more above and beyond than it seems like he's willing to on some other tracks that he's produced in the past. Whether that be through implementing a beat switch up where he introduces a, a new rhythm, a new set of tones or synths or a sample or something, or by just kind of beautifully building onto the track with some new keys or harmonies, like in the case of the Gunna and Young Thug track, Lesbian. So musically and instrumentally, Metro Boomin, he is kind of stepping out of his comfort zone a little bit and is willing to outshine the guest artist that he has on this album a bit more. And honestly, I, I wish it was something he did a bit more routinely, not just within the context of a record like this that's named after himself. Because it's not like a lot of people are listening to these artists' voices for the lyrics anyway. They're just kind of in it for the inflection, the emotional presentation, the melody that they might be singing, especially in the case of Young Thug and Gunna and Travis Scott. So why not get a little bit more out there with the drums and the synths and the string samples or like a little bit of horns? Some of the trap rhythms on this thing might be a little basic and formulaic, certainly nothing that you haven't heard before on a previous Metro Boomin' single, but some of the keys and atmospheres that he conjures on this record are gorgeous. Tracks like the only one interlude with Travis Scott, as well as the previous cut featuring Travis Scott and Young Thug are some of the most psychedelic and surreal trap music that I've heard in the past few years, rivaling anything that I've heard off of a rodeo or his previous LP, Astroworld. Also, another thing to mark the instrumental creativity of this record is how seamlessly a lot of these tracks flow together, as Metro comes up with a lot of synth and sample-based segues to bring one track into another, to really make this record a pretty cohesive listen. So yes, there are some cool beats on here. Metro does arrange some interesting synth passages. There are some great segues here and there. It's a pretty cohesive project aesthetically, but there are moments where it falters, either where Metro Boomin is delivering production or allowing artists to give performances on his tracks that are just utterly average. The track 10am slash Save the World featuring Gucci Mane, you could really kind of place this track anywhere, not just on this album, but I think anywhere on a Metro project, on a Gucci project, and it really wouldn't stand out in any way, shape, or form. Outside of Gucci Mane's somewhat silly inflection on the track, there's not really a lot about it that stands out. And there are some other features on here that range from being either run-of-the-mill or pretty horrendous. Whether, again, it be the redundancy of Gunna and Young Thug on the same track, Lesbian, which, again, those synth and piano passages that he adds into the cut really the only thing that makes that track exciting in the second half. Dreamcatcher. Featuring Sway Lee of Ray Sremmerd fame and Travis Scott is probably the weakest Travis appearance on the entire record. Sway Lee doesn't have a single good performance on this thing. In fact, he gets worse on the track Borrowed Love featuring Wizkid, which is not only a really awkward transition into more of a dance hall sound, but Sway Lee's vocal on this track is absolutely awful. And Kodak Black doesn't really do much better on the cut no more, unfortunately is his one appearance on this record is is not one of his best features in a while. He's particularly off vocally and squeaky for a while now. It seemed like uh, some of his more recent features were a bit more on point and coherent, but it's like he's almost lost grip of that once again with this latest one. Also, let me talk about the redundancy of the appearances by many of the same artists on this record. I get that people like Sway Lee and Travis Scott and so on and so forth are some of Metro's favorite artists to work with. But for the sake of the album's variety, could we have not gotten uh, some more artists in here? Like some other members of Migos or Big Sean or even Future. Where is Future on this thing? 
Future is nowhere to be found outside of, of course, the, the watermark. If young Metro don't just yeah, Consistently the best person on this record, honestly, is 21 Savage. Every verse he drops on this thing is cutthroat as hell. It is fire. And that whisper breakdown on Don't Come Out the House is is, is necessary. Yes, in the midst of his performance on this track, uh, 21 Savage just literally just breaks into whisper raps. Literal whisper raps. So as I mentioned earlier, we do have Metro Boomin attempting a really awkward dance hall track on Borrowed Love. The following cut with Wizkid and Offset sees him uh, embarking on maybe like a bit of a Latin pop vibe. J Balvin is on the track as well, whose feature is also one of the least notable on the entire record. And you know, that's the thing. While Metro does bring forward some good production on this record, a lot of this album's appeal does come down to whether or not the performances on top of these tracks by the rappers and singers that he brings on is all that good. Because yeah, while you can make the argument, and it has been made over and over and over, none of these rappers would be anything without these producers making beats for him, man. Yeah, that's true, but I mean, the material on this thing is only good as the performances that someone like Gunna is doing on top of it. And honestly, the track that he has on this record, it's actually not one of his worst, but still not stupendous enough to really stand out. So unfortunately, the Achilles heel of this record is really that it's, it's a bit of a one-trick pony, and I think Metro put too many eggs in too few baskets by sinking a lot of airtime into a very small collective of rappers, unfortunately. Some of whom actually did give some really incredible performances on maybe one occasion on the record, but every other moment they would return was noticeably weaker. Generally, I thought this LP was pretty likable. It doesn't try to overstay its welcome either, or overload you with too many tracks. And if this super simple and spacious style of trap production is your thing, I definitely recommend trying this record out because it is pulled together in a superb fashion on here, for sure, in its best moments anyway. I appreciate the segues, the cohesion, the production quality, the best moments from standouts like 21 Savage, but really all of that was not enough to make this record fire from front to back. I'm feeling a decent two strong six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Little Peep record, Come Over When You're Sober, part two. This is the new posthumous full-length album from emo rap superstar and formerly goth boy click member, Little Peep, Come Over When You're Sober, part two, one of the year's most highly anticipated records. And not just because of Peep's unfortunate and sudden passing a year ago this month, but also because currently the strain of emo rap that Peep is known for is kind of the current meta in trap rap, thanks to artists like him and Bones and Juice World, as well as XXXTentacion. Now, it's been no secret that I haven't really been a fan of Peep's material up until this point. I named his 2016 project Hellboy as one of my least favorite of the year, and with Come Over When You're Sober Part 1, I didn't exactly pull any punches on my dislike of that record either. And I can't really say my expectations were all that high for the sequel, especially since the big teaser track from this record, which ended up being a bonus cut, was the mostly unfinished collaboration with XXXTentacion, which mostly read like a cobbled together cash grab, and whose intentions were already weird with XXXTentacion 
on recording the song with Peep already having been passed, and now the intentions of releasing the track are even stranger with both of them being gone. So I had a fear going into this that the rest of Come Over When You're Sober would sound equally thrown together, but it actually doesn't. However, that could be because a great deal of the material on this thing is older. The songs Runaway and 16 Lines are a few examples of tracks from this thing that were put up and pulled off of SoundCloud at some point last year. Meanwhile, the song Life Is Beautiful is a remixed and retitled track back from 2015. Still, even with a lot of the material on this thing being familiar to hardcore Peep fans already, this is a pretty competently assembled pop rap album with an emo twist. And when I say pop rap, emphasis on the pop. Because the only thing the track Hate Me needs to be a song of the summer is a faster tempo and some bright quarter note piano chords splashing all over the chorus. But cleaning up peep sound and making it more accessible is a double-edged sword. Because while the really smooth, airy production on this thing is well put together, and I guess it gives Peep's vocals a solid platform. The sound of this record is also really bland and inoffensive and unremarkable, just really unreal and sanitary. And while I can't say I'm a fan of Peep's past material, it seems almost antithetical to his style to clean his sound up to the point where it just sounds like a bad Blink-182 song, a wash and reverb and wrapped in tacky synth strings like on the closing cut fingers. What's worse is I think the production contributes to one of my least favorite aspects of Peep's music up until this point, and that's a sexy portrayal of some pretty dark themes. There's totally nothing wrong with addressing things like heartbreak and depression and addiction in your music, but the focus on these topics with Come Over When You're Sober Part 2 is softer than it's ever been. To where these issues don't sound like problems that need to be faced, but soap opera lovers that need to be embraced and stared into longingly. Even when Peep is making multiple overt references to his own death on this record, it comes off more edgy and seductive than it does chilling or disturbing because he's actually passed away. And I don't think this juxtaposition or Peep's infatuation with dying is displayed any clearer than it is on the song Sex With My Ex. It would be one thing if I felt this record was authentically displaying the dark realities of these problems. The instrumentals with their basic trap beats and heavy bass and bittersweet strong out guitars certainly aren't doing that, and neither are the lyrics, which most of the time are frustratingly surface level. Even when Peep seems to be at his most personal, like on the track Life is Beautiful, which is one of the more reflective cuts on this entire record, even if the rhyme scheme, the A, 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 A rhyme scheme of the track is tedious. I mean, sure, some of the song structures on here could be better, the hooks could pop a little bit more, but really it's the content of these tracks that I can't really get into. The lyrics on the song Broken Smile read like something the Joker might say about Harley Quinn in the midst of the Suicide Squad movie. And honestly, I still don't really care for the nasally, dejected affectation that Pete puts on his voice when he's singing. Granted, his vocal performances on this record, I think, are more dynamic than Come Over When You're Sober Part 1, whose instrumental palette is way more one-dimensional too. Certainly the sequel over here does feature some better singing, does feature some heavier, more luscious instrumentals, which I think take the edge off of his voice a little bit with his vocals being sunk into the beat a bit more. I also like the chorus and the grungy aesthetic of Cry Alone. The song Lean In also stands out as one of the better tunes on this thing. Also, I don't give a F 
Some of the lyrics on that track I found to be a little intriguing with some nods to laptops and modern technology, the creative process in the digital age, emotions in the digital age. But outside of that, there's not really a whole lot about this record that appeals to me. And partially, I guess I could chalk that up to maybe this just not being for me. But honestly, I could easily see my way to liking something like this if the instrumentals were a bit more raw, or had more variation, or these song structures just had more peaks and valleys, or if the lyrics were a bit more thoughtful. But as it stands, I can't really get into the plain writing and the bland instrumentals and just the general ethos of this record at all. Though it's far from the worst thing I've ever heard, and certainly one of the more appealing things that I've heard come under the Little Peep name so far. I'm feeling a strong 4 to a light 5 on this thing. Are you a vinyl fan? an audiophile, you've been looking forward to buying yourself a, a new record at the end of the week or something like that, spoil yourself, treat yourself, buy something for somebody else, holiday season coming up, use turntablelab.com slash the needle drop, get a colorful pressing of a record we have reviewed on the channel, get yourself a turntable, get yourself some speakers, some audio gear, we get kickback from it, supports the podcast, supports the show, and puts an awesome piece of music into your collection. Again, that is turntablelab.com slash the needle drop. Turntablelab.com slash the needle drop. Use that link. Doesn't add to the overall price. If you're already going to buy some music, use it. We get kickback. But bam, it's easy. And I'm over here to talk a little bit about one of my favorite albums of all time. In my opinion, uh, the best and my favorite album in the Beatles' entire discography. I am talking about their massive and legendary White Album, a peculiar record in the Fab Four's discography in that it's a double album. Stylistically, it is all over the place, covering genres from all over the popular music map at the time and, and more. Uh, I think in a lot of ways kind of expanding the popular music vocabulary with some of the stuff that they were incorporating into their songs, especially on tracks like Obla Di, Obla Da, and so on and so forth. So recently, a super deluxe remixed version of the album has been dropped, and I was a little hesitant to give it a shot because I do think so highly of the album. And uh, again, love the record, own it myself, got my own old school stereo pressing of the album. And I just love the tunes on the record. I love how much great material the group drops on the listener on this album. Even though it's not a very cohesive listening experience, uh, it's, it's really stimulating in just how varied it is and how fantastic the tracks are uh, from song to song to song to song. Whether you're talking about blatantly rock or pop-oriented cuts on the record or even uh, the legendary avant-garde sort of sound collage a bit revolution number nine and uh, again kind of skeptical going into this release because i again think so highly of how the record sounds and how the record is as is uh that how, how could you even remix it to improve it and in some respects i think my skepticism was definitely unfounded because in listening to this new 2018 mix there are a lot of beautiful and interesting details that rise up through the newer, cleaner sound of this record. Because if there's anything to know about the White Album, it's just how 
studio intensive this record is in terms of the extra bits of instrumentation and the detail the band are either working in or playing or arranging into these songs, uh, especially on tracks like Glass Onion or um, let's also say uh, the uh, the closing track of the record Good Night, which in this current mix uh, sounds amazing. The string sections on this track sound fantastic and luscious and gorgeous. The way that they've kind of cleaned and brightened up all the string sections on this cut, it almost sounds like it was recorded in 2018. It sounds like a new bit of production. It does not sound old. It does not have that kind of like uh, as as much vintage warmth to it. It has a modern, uh, very sweet and uh, very bright clarity to it that I think sounds wonderful and, and does the track a lot of justice. Um, so if you are somebody who really kind of appreciates uh, the album for its fine little extra bits of instrumental detail, then in my opinion, this is really kind of a must listen uh, to bring up Revolution Number 9 again. The the sound collage and the the panning and uh, the various noises and sounds that come up through that, through that piece are even more overwhelming in this new version than they were in the old one. Uh, to go back to Obladi Oblada, the bass line and the groove on that track, they're actually like little... Uh, variations and bits of the bass line that I was actually hearing for the first time in this new mix that I'd never really noticed before. Um, I would say that's also kind of the case for Bungalow Bill as well, uh, which also the cartoony background vocals that play throughout that track too uh, add a lot more flavor and character because they are brighter. They are more in your face. Uh, they just kind of uh, just bring more flavor. Uh, of course, there are some mixes and some tracks on here. The songs that are a little bit more stripped back, the songs that are acoustic on here where, you know, how could you really imagine uh, them getting screwed up? Dear Prudence, Blackbird, uh, I'd also say Rocky Raccoon as well. However, that's not to say that there aren't some low points of this new mix, though. I think there are a handful of tracks that miraculously do get a, a little messed up and end up worse than than where they were uh, in the natural imperfection that they might have been facing uh, given the time period in which they were recorded. I'm talking about moments like um, uh, Why Don't We Do It in the Road, which oddly enough sounds a lot less visceral in this new version. Maybe the bass isn't as heavy, the instrumentation doesn't feel as dense and compact and full as it does uh, on the old school version. And that's like a heavy rock and blues track. It's got to have some girth to it. It's got to have some weight to it. And for whatever reason, uh, in this new edition of the mix, it just sounds a little hollow. Um, I would also say Revolution Number 1 has kind of suffered in this new version a little bit as well. It doesn't really sound like uh, the performance, I mean, obviously it's a new mix, so the performance isn't different, but for whatever reason, the way the mix is kind of hollowed out again, it's kind of another hollowed out mix on the record. Um, the performance feels a lot stiffer and like it's going slower than it originally was. Um, which is kind of a really odd thing to experience because, uh, Revolution Number no. 1 is a track that to me always felt like really smooth and had a nice, very fluid, mid-paced groove to it. And uh, again, this new version, it just seems almost like a little uh, static in a way. And, uh, and finally, probably my least favorite mix on the entire record is this new mix of Helter Skelter. I do appreciate some of the uh, weird little background vocal licks that are now pumped up into the mix to the point where they're like 
popping up periodically, really much brighter than they ever were in the original mix and uh, kind of really overtaking uh, the sound uh, in a way that I guess adds a bit more variation than uh, the original had. But uh, this mix is one of the most hollowed out, one of the most like bass deficient mixes on the entire record, whereas this mix really should have been the most bass intensive on the entire record because it is the most bass intensive on the original. And to me, this new mix of of Helter Skelter is antithetical to what the band's intentions were with the first track, with the original track, with the original mix, because at the time the band were trying to make the most heavy, chaotic, pummeling track that they possibly could. And one of the only ways that they could go about that, given the studio technology of the 1960s, was just to really crank the bass up, This is, which is why you hear Paul's bass line just clunking around all over the mix. I mean, there's a lot of parts in that song where the bass is actually just a lot louder than the guitar is because it's just clunking and banging and just uh, just growling away. You know, it's it's a little overblown, but I mean, that's kind of part of the magic of it. You know, it's a lot like the original mix that Iggy Pop had conceived for for raw power in a way, you know, like it's it was just really heavy. It was just really thick. It was like kind of blown out. It was a little messy, but I mean, it added to the character of the track, you know, like in a way you kind of have to uh, respect the original arrangement of, of Helter Skelter much in the way that you have to uh, appreciate what the band were trying to do on Revolution Number Nine, and the fact that Helter Skelter, Skelter is just so uh, you know thinned out, uh, kind of struck me as odd. Given that there are other pretty hard rocking tracks on the record uh, that go over pretty well, you know, that actually have a decent amount of bass in the mix. I would say hey, 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 Birthday is an example of that. You know, that that's a mix of a hard rocking track on this record that uh, the new version is just really right on the money. You know, so there are a few spots on the record where I do think the mix could have been a lot better, could have been maybe truer to the band's original intentions. But outside of that, if you're a Beatles fan and you love this record, this is a must listen because it definitely puts a lot of tracks on here in a new light, uh, especially, again, the tracks that had uh, uh, more instrumental shifts, more layers. Of course, once you go deeper into the deluxe version, you get all of the acoustic demos from pretty much every track on the record, some other songs that didn't make it on the record. You have rehearsal uh, recordings. You have various takes of pretty much every track on the record. And overall, it's like five hours of material. So, you know, I definitely enjoyed my listen through to the new mix and uh, kind of perusing different takes of tracks that uh, that I liked the most throughout the album. It's it's really intriguing because not only does this mix put a lot of the instrumental arrangements in, the, in, in a new light, but uh, I feel like these rehearsals also kind of put the band's creative process for this record in a new light too because there are some takes and there are some rehearsal bits on this thing that are really absolutely uh, terrible. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely terrible. What I'm thinking of is this unnumbered rehearsal of the track Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey, the intro of that track. If, if you want to hear the Beatles record a horrible song, like a horrible instrumental yeah, listen to this because it, it definitely gives you insight into the band's creative process and kind of hammering these tracks out and, and sort of shows you that 
you know, fantastic ideas don't just friggin' come out of nowhere. They don't just fly into your head and then all of a sudden they're just coming out of your mouth. You got to work on them. They come from uh, a very rudimentary or or, or really even a, a, an awful idea to start and then you craft it into something uh, much better. There are many, many compelling sort of takes and, and just rehearsal versions of really great tracks on this record, uh, to go back to Helter Skelter, there's a super long, mega bluesy and slow, like 12 minute take of the song that's totally different in vibe, uh, in comparison to the original. And there's another much shorter, much aggressive and way more psychedelic and trippy and all the sounds kind of bleeding into each other, way too much echo on the vocals version, which I actually kind of prefer to the new mix, but still, uh, to kind of hear the band's creative process on the way to making this record is uh, is pretty cool. Also, on top of it, you know, one thing that kind of stuck out to me in the in the track list over here is we have the track "Not Guilty," take one hundred and two. It just goes to show how much time, effort, and money the band and their labor were throwing at this record to be recording so prolifically to create this uh, heavy and thick and uh, very dense album. Uh, you know, it's 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 no joke when people talk about the that infamous little recording of Ringo at the end of again Helter Skelter on the original record, where he's like, "I got blisters on my fingers" because he was just jamming really hard for one take after another on that single track, and <laughs> some of the original uh, jam sessions of that song were rumored to be over twenty minutes long. Uh, it's actually you know kind of a shame that uh, one of those harder, heavier. Uh, longer takes of uh, of that didn't end up on this record, but you know, as is, this is a pretty amazing and uh, uh, enlightening deep dive into one of the most interesting albums in rock history. So, Super Deluxe, The Beatles' White Album. Do not miss out on this if you are a Beatles fan, even a casual one, because. Uh, uh, what this record reveals, even though it does uh, kind of offer some missteps on some of the best tracks here, uh, is pretty great. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. And it's time for a track review I'm going to be talking about and taking on this latest song from Mike Will Made It, Pharrell Williams, and Kendrick Lamar set to be released on the new Creed 2 soundtrack. The Mantra is the title of this song. I, I actually saw the first Creed. I, I barely ever see movies. <laughs> and that was a rare instance in, in, which, I, in which I saw one. And uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty nice. Michael B. Jordan, you know, he's, he's, he's coming up. I used to watch a really terrible family drama show that he was on uh, that, that I forget the title of off the top of my head, but some of you might remember it. But uh, he's, he's been doing pretty well with the movie roles that he's been in lately. But we're not here to review Michael B. Jordan's acting career. We're here to talk about this new single. So uh, let's let's see what these guys have to offer coming together. Mike Will made it. Pharrell Williams and Kendrick Lamar is quite the meeting of the minds. And it is popping onto a big budget movie soundtrack. At least I imagine the budget this time around is going to be bigger considering how successful the first one was, and clearly they had some money to throw away at music promotion um, to get some hot artists to <laughs> create music connected with the film. So 
you know, this could actually be great or it could sort of be a phoned in hot mess where everybody just kind of wanted to show up and get their check uh, because it's, it's for a, just a big movie. But whatever. Uh, let's see what's going on. The mantra. Ba-bam. God. I could not wait for that to be over. Jeez. Won't get enough to watch me. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I know I said before I played this track, hey, it could actually be like pretty dope, pretty good, uh, or it could be a totally phoned in mess where everybody's just putting in as little effort as possible just to make it sound like really bland and generic and uh, listenable because it's going to be on a big soundtrack and, you know, just essentially be background music in the film or just connected to the film. And yeah, it's, it's pretty much that. These are two of the worst and most underwhelming performances from Kendrick and Pharrell in a while. I would say especially Pharrell. Like, he pretty much just sounds like a tone-deaf SoundCloud rapper on, on this track, which is depressing. It's actually really sad uh, that somebody with the talent and the, the foresight and the vision that Pharrell has and has proven to have uh, through his solo efforts, through all of his production, through the Neptunes, through NERD, so on and so forth. Uh, here, he just sounds completely anonymous and just sounds like every other uh, SoundCloud rapper, SoundCloud crooner out there. Um, and, and doesn't even really even live up to the bar of like, let's say, a Trippy Red. Uh, I, I find Trippy Red's vocal performances over production just like this far more compelling uh, than what Pharrell delivered over here. Meanwhile, Kendrick, uh, lyrically, he's just kind of asleep at the wheel. Like, there's not really anything all that interesting or sharp about his verse when he kind of reached up into his upper, more nasal register and kind of rapped, sung his way through the second part of his uh, uh, bars. It sounded even more uninteresting, frankly. Uh, and the beat itself is just a really generic dime a dozen trap instrumental with a lot of very, I guess, smooth, glistening synth tones playing throughout it. There's really nothing all that special about this song. <laughs> There's really nothing special or exciting about it at all. I wouldn't even say in the case of the movie, is it all that pointed or topical? This just sounds like a generic pop rap tune. It's it's really unfortunate to see that these trap sounds uh, over the years since they really kind of broke into the public consciousness in the earlier part of this decade have really just kind of been stripped entirely of their rawness, their aggression, their excitement, their electricity, uh, thanks to tracks like this, because, <laughs> because this is just basically being produced for an audience of people who, you know, don't, don't really listen to TI, you know, uh, don't really listen to, uh, you know, the, the type of production that you might catch on like a Lex Luger track or something like that. This is really just really drab. I know I'm kind of repeating myself here, but it's, I, I really have no other way to explain or kind of get across to you. This is boring. This is lifeless. 
This is everybody just showing up to collect the check. The, nothing lyrically or melodically interesting, instrumentally interesting or special about this track. It, just you, listen to me. You're going to forget about it in a few weeks. <laughs> Maybe even a matter of seconds with that Anderson Pack record coming out around the corner. Anderson Pack record is going to drop. You're going to forget this song even existed. Um, you know, it's, it's been sort of unfortunate to not just see the, sanitiza- the sanitation of, of trap music uh, happening more and more and more as we go deeper into the decade. But on top of it, to see a lot of the big name artists kind of buying into these movie tie-ins by coming out with music uh, oriented toward the film. And they're just making these really generic, terrible tracks that uh, don't have that much flavor to them. I mean, you know, I could give it to the Black Panther soundtrack for uh, at least having some good cuts on it. And even if, even if it was a little overproduced, it did sound like they were uh, coming out with coherent songs. You know, All the Stars, that's a coherent and a catchy track. Again, a little overproduced, but it's still a coherent and a pretty captivating song. And even though I haven't really enjoyed Tyler's uh, latest works for the Grinch soundtrack, uh, I feel like it's a, a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a bit of a misfocus of his talent, in my opinion. It's my opinion. Uh, for him to kind of a, apply those flower boy sounds to, you know, just the theme of the Grinch stole Christmas. Uh, but I mean, I can at least give him credit for like, well, it seems like he in a way was really inspired by the film and lyrically and topically conceptually really wanted to focus on the film, the movie and his lyrics and the music and try to embody it in some way, shape or form. Uh, this track to me, there's nothing really about this track that says to me, whoa, Creed 2. It just sounds like a really, uh, I'm not even going to say the word generic again because I've already said it a million times because that's exactly what this track is. This, this is just truly throwaway. It's truly throwaway. That is going to be it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank all of you for tuning in to this conveniently compacted series of reviews that we bring you week to week to week. Make sure if you can, whatever platform you're listening to this on, give us a rating, give us a review, say something nice, recommend it to your friends. I want to give a shout out to Jonah who assembles this podcast every single week and make sure to hit us up and follow us on social media. If you are not already twitter.com slash the needle drop Instagram, a Fantano, theneedledrop.com. You know what it is. All right. We'll see you guys in the next episode. We'll have another batch of reviews for you then and have a good one forever.